It, uh, it has been a while since I've led worship and preached. So this could go one of two ways. I could either be a little extra tired for preaching, and we get done sooner. Or it could mean I'm a little slower in my preaching, and it could take us a lot longer. Uh, your prayers will probably determine that if uh, you're righteous, right? Righteous Prayers of the righteous availeth much. So hopefully you're prayed up as you come in this morning. Luke chapter 22. This is probably not your typical uh, Christmas message, nor your typical Christmas songs. Um, Of course, I have to ask, since when do we do anything around here that's incredibly typical? Um, But nevertheless, that doesn't make us any better than anybody else. It just means that uh, God is guiding us, I believe, this way. And I think as we begin the series and as we will have two more weeks left, we will be in 23 next week and 24 the following week. Um, that as we have set out in this series, we, our goal has again been to change the way we think and change the way we think particularly about Christmas. Um, it's interesting. I've been encouraged uh, that, um, and, and I'm not saying that you have to do this, but I've been encouraged by the way our people uh, have been thinking through Christmas, particularly as it pertains to kids. Um, we've been thinking, I've been hearing different conversations about, uh, about Santa Claus and whether or not to do Santa Claus, and, and of course I'm thinking like, uh, you know, if one person in the church decides not to do Santa Claus, and that's going to probably ruin it for like all the other kids, um, which, uh, which is funny. But what's cool, and I, I was reflecting on this last night with Sarah, is that, um, like, at least to my knowledge, I don't think the elders have provoked this thinking through of Santa Claus. We have provoked the, let's think through Christmas. And one of the implications of that is, let's think through Santa Claus. Is this something that we should do? Is it something that we shouldn't do? And and uh, by the way, I don't think that you're sinful if you do Santa Claus. Uh, and I don't think that you're more pious if you don't do Santa Claus. Um, but I do think that it honors God for you to think through what we do. And I think that honors God. So if you're going to do Santa Claus, do it because you've thought and prayed and looked at Scripture and have not come, at the end of the day, convicted about doing Santa Claus. Um, if you're not going to do Santa Claus then do it because you've thought through Scripture and prayed about it, and at the end of the day, you've come convicted to not do Santa Claus. Um, And uh, not just do it because, or not just not do it because everybody else is not doing it, and not just do it just because everyone else is doing it. So there's my pre-sermon to the sermon. Uh, But as we've gone through this series, I want us to rethink through Christmas. Uh, I mean, Christmas is what? How many days away? So we've got tomorrow, Tuesday, and then... Wednesday is the day that we will celebrate Christmas. It's interesting for me, just as a side note, I don't know, I, like we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, but yet I know Jesus didn't die, or did not die. He was not born on December 25th necessarily. Matter of fact, he most likely did not. Uh, and then on top of that, we all celebrate like Christmas at different times now, you know, so to me it's like the Christmas season uh, and this is the time when we set aside special emphasis to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. 
um, and not just on a day, but as a season. Um, and so Christmas being two, diff- two days away, three days away, we've, we've spent much time by now trying to find all those perfect gifts. Has anybody gone out in the madness like this past weekend? Anybody? I went out in the madness to go grocery shopping, and I told Sarah never again. Uh, at least not on Saturday and not on the weekend before Christmas, and not to do like our month's worth of groceries. Um, I got to the end of the thing and realized I had not bought any sides uh, for this next month's worth of groceries. And I'm like, darn it, I got all the main dishes. I guess we're just eating steak, and that's it. Uh, so, or meat, but that would be okay with me. Uh, so we spend this time trying to find these perfect gifts. We spend... We've spent much time planning those family get-togethers, right? You all have some sort of family-type get-together, I'm sure. We've we spent much time doing this and doing that. And I want to ask us a question this morning. How much time this season has been given to contemplating, studying, and reflecting on the birth, the nature of that birth, the theology surrounding the birth of our Savior? How much time have we given to that? Or has it been caught up in the hoopla of that which we call Christmas and completely missing the point and missing what we should be doing? And that is spending time contemplating, studying, reflecting on the birth of Christ. Um, Realize that the time spent in your mind and in your heart in various areas is probably indicative of of the size of space in which Christ occupies your heart and your mind. So if this Christmas, if I've spent 90% of the time thinking of material possessions and and even giving of those material possessions as as pious as that might sound, unfortunately, many of us haven't thought through where Christ sits at in our hearts. How much space does He occupy? He should occupy it all, right? And then out of that occupying of Christ in our hearts, then we give gifts, we arrange family time, we invest in our kids, we teach them. Because honestly, guys, if we live through particularly this season with many other things other than Jesus occupying our hearts, if there's any time of year that our kids are going to pick up on that, it's going to be Christmas. Because now, for just a few days, the whole world oftentimes centers around them. And what is mommy and daddy getting them? I noticed someone on Facebook this past week that uh, the second year in the row, they've posted a picture of how many gifts they've given their kids, or their kid, single kid. And, uh, and there, if you've been to my house, the gifts would more than take up the entire living room of my house for one kid. And, uh, and, you know, we may not have, you know, spent thousands of dollars on our kids for Christmas gifts, but have we led them to see the rightful place of Jesus as occupying their hearts versus their selfish desires, their personal motives, their sin, whatever the case may be? Have we led them to do that? And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to take some time to open our hearts and reflect on the topic of the birth of Christ. Specifically, the purpose for which He came. Because my goal, my hope, is that you will never again look at the baby in the manger the same way. 
that you will not be able to look at the baby in the manger without seeing the cross laying, or standing rather, in the background. That you could not just pass by Jesus coming as humanity. Why did he come? For what reason? Was it just to live as a man? Was it just to go through some things so that we have someone that we can relate to and feel better about our own struggles and sin? I mean, why did he come? He came for a purpose. And as we come in Luke, we see that the Son of Man was born to die. Now, baby was born to die, not in the sense that we all are born to die, right? We're all born and will eventually see death unless Christ comes first. We're all born to die. Every other man on this entire earth was born with a natural purpose to die. Jesus, however, was born with a purpose beyond just a natural death, but a purpose that his death would serve, and that death would serve the benefit of all of us and ultimately God's glory. And so when we think of that infant coming, I think it's hard for me at least to look at him and go, oh, how cute. Oh, thank God Jesus came. No, thank God Jesus came, and he bore my sin on a cross. And that baby right there will one day pay what I could not pay, do what I could not do, earn what I could not earn, live a life that I could not accomplish, and give me an inheritance that I did not deserve. That's that baby in the manger. He will do that someday. That was the purpose, ultimately for God's glory, but that was the purpose. The baby was born to die. Now, as we come to Luke chapter 22 here, this is basically the chapter right before the death of Jesus. As we look at this chapter, I want us to view it from two perspectives. We're going to view it first from more of a human perspective, like what's going on, kind of the tragedy of this night before Christ's crucifixion. And then the second perspective we're going to look at it is from more of a divine perspective. What's going on kind of behind the scenes? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the first part and we're going to read through the text in sections and think about it from more of a human perspective. What's going on? Then we're going to go back to the beginning of the passage and we're going to preach through it from looking at more of a divine perspective. What's going on behind the scenes? So first, so the first perspective here we have is uh, more of a human perspective, and I want us to see the tragedy. So we're, we're going to be seeing the tragedy of the night before Christ's death. And again, we're thinking about this in the perspective of Christmas. Why did this baby come? It was for this night, and it was for the next day that he came. So first of all, seeing the tragedy first point there for us this morning that I think we see in this next section of text is that seeing doesn't always result in believing. Right? I mean, our culture says, maybe even some of us think, seeing is believing. Right? Anybody heard that phrase? Seeing is believing. I propose to you that seeing doesn't always result in believing. So let's start. Chapter 22, verse 1 through 6. Let's read together. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Familiar thought here. Then Satan entered into Judas called 
Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So here we go. This week, Christ's life is not looking so good. Those who oppose him are all coming together. The leaders of God's chosen people. Christ's own disciple, Judas. All these coming, converging together. The Romans even in on this. Now I want us to take a closer look at Judas for just a few moments because I think and I'm afraid that many of us in this room even are maybe more like Judas than we realize. Even in the Christmas, we can be more like Judas than we realize. I mean, think about Judas with me. Judas physically walked with Christ, right? He spent three years of his life walking with his Savior. Judas physically took care of Christ. I mean, his disciples, one of the roles of a disciple would be to care for their rabbi. So he cared, Judas cared for Christ, both in a, an affectionate sense and in a physical sense. Judas was even uh, intrigued by Christ's invite. Like he, This was something Judas wanted to be a part of. Judas walked like a disciple, but in reality, we can see that he never was. Judas walked, talked, quacked, right, like a disciple, but at the end of the day, he was not. Now, I think there's three categories of people that probably sit in this room. One, those who know they don't follow Christ. Two, those who know they follow Christ. And three, those who think they follow Christ, but in reality do not. Three categories. Those who know they don't, those who know they do, and those who think they do, but in reality do not. I'm going to talk about each of these categories for just a brief second. First of all, those who know they don't follow Christ. And if this is not you, then pay attention, though, to these questions, because you can maybe help someone who is not a follower of Christ. My question is, why not? Why not a follower of Christ? I often hear, well, if I could just see Jesus, if I would just, if He just show me somehow, right, then I would believe. Anybody heard that? If He just show me. Understand, guys, the Pharisees walked with Jesus. They saw His miracles. Judas walked with Jesus. He saw firsthand the miracles of Christ. They saw Him face to face, yet they still continued to reject Him. And to those who don't follow Christ but say, I would if He'd show me, I am certain that you probably would reject Him as well. Second category, those who think they follow Christ, but in reality do not. My question, and this would be a question I'd ask all of us, whether you, whatever category you think yourself in, whether you think you're a Christ follower, which would, that would probably be your category here, you think you're a Christ follower, how do you know you're not a Judas? How do you know? That'd be a question I would encourage you to write down and reflect on this week. How do I know I'm not 
a Judas. One who knows God, but does not love God. One who knows Jesus, but does not walk with Jesus. You see, this time of year is wonderful to think through these kind of questions. Because we'll post pictures of Jesus, we'll talk about baby in the manger, we'll read the Christmas story at Christmas time, we'll have relatives that'll read the Christmas story at Christmas time. These people know Jesus, but do not walk with Jesus. Here's maybe a diagnostic question for us Do you desire to love and know Jesus, or do you want the things he offers? I think that's a good diagnostic question for us all to think through this Christmas, particularly in the season of giving gifts, receiving gifts, all of that. Do we want Jesus or do we simply want the things He offers? Again, I come back to the question I asked a couple weeks ago. If we were to remove family time, giving gifts, the eating together, the receiving, giving, like I said, of gifts, Would it still feel like Christmas if we took all that away and it was just you sitting in a room by yourself? Would it still feel like Christmas? Or has Christmas become something that we've culturally created and we prefer the things of Jesus rather than Jesus himself? And that's even giving a a nice assumption that the things we have attached ourselves to and become emotionally committed to are things of Jesus. Because in reality, a lot of them may not be, you know, right? Christmas tree, it's not the thing, it's not a thing of Jesus. It might resemble something in our heart that connects us to Christ, but it's not something that necessarily He instituted. But my thought, is, my question here though is, do we want the things of Jesus or do we want Him? I mean, what if God, what if Christ had planned for you suffering every day going forward? No seeming material blessing, whatever. All of it's going to be stripped away, like Job, right? Would it still, would you still want Jesus? I think that's a good diagnostic question to help us diagnose whether or not we are a Judas. You see, Judas only wanted the things Christ offered, and once a better offer came along, he took it, right? The opportunity to betray Jesus getting money for it, and he took it. It was a better offer. And many of us may not ultimately take the better offer, like as in an eternal sense, but many times we take the better offer on a daily basis. Right now, what might be my better offer is that I maintain control of my situation versus giving it over to God. That's being a Judas When something better comes along, I'm going to take it. So the question is, do you trust in Jesus for his work on the cross? Or are you trying to continually make yourself right before God? That would be another diagnostic question. Am I depending upon Christ for for, for his work on the cross? Or am I trying to earn it myself? That might indicate you being another Judas. So, those two categories, now the third. You are a Christian, you know you're a follower of Christ. Of course, you need to think through regularly, am I a Judas? But as a Christian, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you feel certain of that at this point. 
you might say, if we're thinking through this idea of Judas and seeing as believing, maybe, maybe you would trust God if He would just show you something great. Maybe if He'd just enter into your life and just do something miraculous, you go, okay, now I will give this to God. Understand that the Pharisees had seen the awesome works that Jesus had done, and yet they still would not trust Him. And they knew God's Word better than any of us will ever know God's Word. They knew the Word, they saw it, and yet they did not believe. They did not trust. And many of us sit in that same boat as followers of Christ, where we just we want to keep back for ourselves various things. We don't want to give them to God. If for some reason we tend to desire, no matter what category we are in, we desire to see in order to believe. And ultimately, Judas saw but did not believe. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the leaders, of they saw but they did not believe. So let's not confuse ourselves in thinking that I must see in order to believe. And, or even saying, well... I have seen the works of God in my life, so therefore I believe. Like, oh, do we believe? Do we believe what God has said is true? Do we have faith? I'm not saying that we, those things of, of display of God's work do not serve a grand purpose. I think they do to encourage us, to encourage us, but, but to encourage us in our faith. Here's, 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 let me give you a thought on faith. If you saw it and believed, Maybe your trust then is in your ability to see and affirm rather than in the one whom you should be trusting. Does that make, so let me explain that. Just because you see something and have faith in it does not necessarily relegate your faith as void or false. But I think there's the temptation that when we see it, our, our trust can ultimately be in our perception and ability to understand the situation versus ultimately our faith being in the one who's behind the situation. So I think if anything, God has worked a grand position for us to live in where we don't see it and we have to live by faith. We didn't see the cross. We didn't see Him raised from the grave. We don't know that God exists. Uh, some of you that might rock your world, like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, I've not seen him, have you? There's faith. It's either trust in him or not, because you didn't see it. So, maybe seeing is not always believing, and let's not fool ourselves into that. Let's live by faith. And let's, let's ask God, are we a Judas? That when something better comes along, our heart just kind of floats that direction. Because here's the deal, guys. If that happens daily, it will eventually become habit if it's not already. And then it will begin to consume your heart. And then eventually it will take over your heart. When something comes along that's better, I take it. I take it. I take it. I take it. Now it's got me. Luke chapter 22, verse 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? 
where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So here, Jesus gives instructions to prepare the Passover, and just very simply, his disciples follow through. We'll come back to this passage in a little bit. I want to give you a thought here. If you're taking notes, it would be wise that that you notate what verses go along with each subpoints, then you can go back and reflect on that better later. So the next thought is Jesus taught and modeled the denial of self-magnification. The next thing I think we see, so seeing is not always believing. Now Jesus taught and modeled the denial of self-magnification. So if I was taking notes, I would put next to self-magnification, Luke chapter 22, 14 through 34, or just simply a V, 14 through 34. 14. Let's read. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Let's work through this. So Jesus taught and modeled the denial of self-magnification. So how does Jesus magnify God in this text? Here Jesus begins to describe the wine as His body being poured out and the bread as His body broken. But let's think of the examples of self-magnification in the text. Jesus speaks of the one who will betray him. And the disciples, think what happens. They pridefully begin to argue about who this is. What's not me? It's, It's not me. I wouldn't be the one that would betray Jesus. I mean, this is what's going on. Self magnification. It's not me. It's gotta be him. Remember, I I think it's a legitimate question for us to ask from the very beginning of of this sermon is, are we the Judas? Not, oh no, it couldn't be me. Oh no, it very well could be any one of us in this room. We all could be the one magnifying self, saying, no, it couldn't be. I could never betray Jesus. Another example of self-magnification that we see in the text is 
the disciples begin to argue about who will be the greatest in heaven. Just think about the situation for me. Jesus is saying, and we're going to talk about this more later, but he's the Passover meal, and he knows his death is coming. And he's saying, this is my blood, this is my body, broken, poured out for you. Now, Jesus at this point is not worried about the lashes that are going to be beating him in the back. He's not worried about the spikes that are going to be nailed into his hands. Right now he's worried, he's thinking about the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on his life, on his body, on his person. And the disciples begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. Self-magnification. How many times do we, in the presence of Christ, desire self-magnification? What is Christmas about? Is it about Christ's magnification? Or is it about our magnification? Is it about our kids being impressed with how much we can give them? Is it about us getting as much as we can? Or is it about our kids understanding, loving, believing the story of Christ coming to this earth to die on the cross for our sins? That would be God magnification. So Jesus responds by teaching God magnification. He says this, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the leader as the one who serves. I love how Jesus says back here, uh, for who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines, uh, is it not the one who reclines at table? He says this, but I among you as the, I'm among you as the one who serves. And what Jesus is saying is that if the greatest among you is the one who reclines at the table, then that's not me. I think Jesus at this point is saying, I'm the king, I'm the one that deserves to be served, but I'm the one standing here serving you. And we'll see this as the day goes on, as the night goes on, and and then tomorrow uh, as we work through that next week, we will see that the king who should have been served was the one being led to the gallows. The one being led up the hill. But see, Jesus talks about God magnification. Guys, Jesus is the king who came who could not be served, but came to serve, to magnify God. Even Christ models for us not Jesus' magnification, but God magnification. And then God also, in other texts, shows us Christ's magnification, the selfless magnification of the other. The Bible explains Let me point out to you in this text that we see with these disciples. The Bible shows us here, and Jesus shows us here, the brokenness of man, ourselves. How could these men, here's the question, how could these men be so selfish at such a moment? How? It's ultimately, I think, because they desired to build their own kingdom. The age-old fundamental sin. Adam and Eve desired to have their own kingdom. We desire to have our own kingdom. The Pharisees desired to have their own kingdom. And the disciples at this moment desired to have their own kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest among us, right? 
Who's going to sit at the right hand of God? Who's going to do it? It's me. No, no, it's me. No, it's me. They desired to build their own kingdom. We struggle with the same thing. But the thing is, is oftentimes, I bet you our selfishness and self-magnification isn't always quite so obvious. Let me give you a couple examples of maybe where we desire self-magnification versus God-magnification. Let me give you an example. If you are building a good moral marriage but aren't seeking at every turn to build a marriage that magnifies God, you are doing the same thing. You are building a marriage that builds your kingdom even though it might look good and pious, if it's not a marriage built to glorify God, to be centered on the cross, then you're doing the same thing. Same thing in parenting. If you're building good, behaved kids, but you're not guiding their hearts to surrender to Christ, you're building your own kingdom. A kingdom in which your kids make you look good. You're building your kingdom. I told Sarah, said, I'd rather have some of the worst behaved kids in the church that ultimately end up loving Jesus, even as the pastor. And that's my commitment to you is to lead my kids to Jesus, not to have the best behaved kids in the church. And I would encourage you, any leaders, that you don't look at their kids and go, oh, well, he must be a terrible parent because he's not well behaved. Now, maybe our goals are just different than other people's. Now, Here's the deal. If he loves Jesus, the behavior will come. It just may be a little delayed or it might not look the same. I'd rather have my son with me in heaven, my sons with me in heaven, than have you happy with the way they behave on earth. And I, and I think all of you parents would agree with me on that. So um, I, I, I appreciate that, and I know Rusty does as well. But are we building our kingdom? We, we have to look at every turn. I think this is a, a temptation that we have at every turn. Am I building my kingdom or am I building His? Am I building my kingdom or am I building His? We need to ask that all the time. I know in our house gathering Tuesday night, we asked the question, how can we live a life so that we're not caught off guard at the coming of Jesus Christ as He warned about in chapter 21? How do we do that? One of the ways we do that is we be about building his kingdom in preparation for the king to come. Then you're not going to be caught off guard. I'm building his kingdom, preparing it for him. I'm building his kingdom here, preparing it for him. I'm building his kingdom here, preparing it for him. Oh my gosh, there he is. Awesome. He's here for his kingdom that I've been about building by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been building his kingdom through me. It's about his kingdom. So whose kingdom are you building? Is it a self-kingdom or is it God's kingdom? Do you look at the baby in the manger? Are you trying to build his kingdom? Or are you trying to build yours? Would you just assume the baby be put to death now so that I can build my kingdom? That's what the Pharisees said. Let's kill him so we can have our inheritance. I know. It's exciting for a Christmas message, right? Luke chapter 22. Let's keep going. This is the third thing we see. You need to know the truth about yourself. You need to know the truth about yourself. So this would be verses 31 through 34. You need to know the truth about yourself. I love this Christ's accurate analysis of the truth 
about Simon. He says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? I mean, so think back to the category of Christian who says I'm a Christian, but are we a Judas? I'm a Christian. I'm not a Judas. That's what, Jesus, what Peter is saying here. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, the reality, Peter, is this. The rooster will not crow this day until you have denied, until you deny three times that you know me. Again, Peter says, no, 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 I, Jesus, I'm with you. There's no way I'm a Judas. I'm with you. Notice Peter's promised boldness here. Now we know from the rest of the chapter, not just from Christ's prophecy here, but we know from the rest of the chapter that Peter does not indeed do what he so boldly proclaimed that he did, or that he would do. Peter at this point, think about this with me, Peter at this point does not have an accurate assessment of himself. I've got this, Jesus. I'm not going to fail. Peter had deceived himself into bold assurance of his own ability. Knowing oneself, here's the deal, knowing oneself accurately is essential to progress in your journey of faith. Having an accurate assessment of yourself is essential. And I would warn us to be aware that we can easily deceive ourselves. We can convince ourselves of anything. Peter was convinced that he would be bold, that he would not be a Judas. I want to read to you a few quotes from Paul Tripp. He said this, No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Right? Think about that. We're all in a constant conversation with ourselves. He says this, whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And the things you say to you are formative of the way you live. You are constantly talking to yourself about your identity, your spirituality, your functionality, your emotionality, your mentality, your personality, your relationships, etc. You are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. You preach to yourself an anti-gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom. Or you preach to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace. You know, if you're not a follower of Christ, my question is this, is what standard do you have apart from yourself as a mirror to look in for an accurate assessment of who you are. If you're not a follower of Christ, you have been preaching to yourself undeniably, like Peter, a gospel of your own righteousness, power, and wisdom. But through your lost friends, if you are a follower of Christ, your lost friends, they are preaching to themselves a gospel of their own righteousness, power, and wisdom. Guys, we were made, if you're not a follower of Christ, you were made by God to live in the center of His righteousness, 
power and wisdom. But you must deny yours to have His. It's not your righteousness plus His righteousness, and that's what gets you into heaven. Your righteousness on your best day is a filthy rag. Christians, those who follow Christ, understand that you have the same tendency to preach to yourself a gospel of self-righteousness. We have the same tendency. Struggle daily. I struggle daily with this preaching. No, I've got this, God. I'm good enough. Someone just laid the smack down on that one, right? Kaboom! Understand that you have the same tendency to preach to yourself a gospel of self-righteousness. This, hear me guys, and I hope you're so encouraged at this, but this is one of the main reasons we need the body of Christ. We're in an unending conversation with ourselves. Listen to what Paul Tripp says on the same thing. He says, I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. We're all having this conversation and we are preaching to ourselves either a gospel of self-righteousness or a gospel of true righteousness and desperate need for Him. And we all go back and forth on that, right? And we need people. That's why we need the church. And we need to pursue those so that they can speak into our lives. Look, you're pursuing a different gospel. Stop. Stop preaching that gospel to yourself. And then they're there to help you Preach the right gospel to yourself. So, Jesus is helping Peter here. Guys, Jesus is just modeling for us this kind of community that we have within the body. And Jesus is saying, Simon Peter, you don't have an accurate assessment of yourself. You're preaching a gospel of self-righteousness, of self-ability, that you can handle this. And I'm telling you what, Peter, you cannot. You need me. Matter of fact, you needed me before you knew you needed me. That's why I prayed that, uh, that he might, that he, I'm sorry, he says in 32, but I have prayed for you and that your faith may not fail. Peter, before you knew your faith would fail, I prayed for you because I knew it would fail. Because I have an accurate assessment of who you are, Peter. Guys, I would encourage you that God has an accurate assessment of who you are. Let's continue. Chapter 22. There's not going to be any points with these next few passages. I'm going to read and make a couple comments and continue on. Verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. In response to Peter's boasting, 
Jesus talks about the opposition mounting against him. It's coming. You know, and when just for just for note's sake, when he says it is enough, he's not saying the quantity of swords you have is enough. It's more of a frustrated, it's enough. It would be more of Jesus' thought there. Does that make sense? He's not satisfied that they have two swords. He's saying, no, stop it. That's what he's saying. He's like, again, you don't get the point. Continue on verse 39. He says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, so this is after the Lord's Supper, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. A lesson for us all. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in uh, agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here, once they had finished supper, they went to the Mount of Olives as it was a custom for Christ. He, here Jesus prayed in great anguish. I mean, knowing what was coming. Quick note here, Jesus encouraged them to pray so as to not fall into temptation. I think we too should heed this warning. Uh, We should pray as well so that we might not fall into temptation on anything. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve who was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So finally, here, the leaders have got him in their hands, right? He's away from the crowds. Now he'll be tried as a criminal. Verse 54 Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the country yard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
Then Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So while Jesus is being, think about this, while Jesus is being tried, beaten, mocked, Peter denies even knowing him. I think the purpose of the rapid succession of his denials was to show that this was no accident. This three times, boom, boom, boom. I mean, all within a couple hours of each other was to show that Peter just didn't accidentally slip and say, no, I don't know him when he should have said, I do know him. But it was very clear. And Jesus, or Peter here, realizes what he had done, and he wept bitterly. I wonder how La, 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 there we go. I wonder how many of us, um, you know, deny him and then look up and see his face looking at us, right? I mean, Jesus knew it was coming. But I tell you what, I do thank God that he has prophesied my failures, but even still when I look up at him, I see his face and he's still there. But understand, Peter, what do you, what's he do? He runs out. He weeps bitterly. And I want to remind us at this point that sin never delivers its grand promises. Peter, what he thought would benefit him during this time, what he thought would be the better option to deny Jesus, ended up sending him into weeping bitterly. My question for us today is, how is your sin treating you? How's it doing? Maybe it's hidden sin, like lust, covetousness, bitterness, envy, self-righteousness. How's it treating you? Maybe you had some more visible sin, like materialism or self-indulgence. How's that working out? Is it satisfying you? At the end of the day, is it enough? Do you go to bed feeling satisfied and full and happy like you could die now and it'd all be awesome? Or do you wake up tomorrow wanting needing more of it because you're not satisfied? Maybe you have sin that you've openly confessed but not privately repented of. I think there's a danger. I think we have to watch out. There's a danger. Just notice an observation in people's lives where if I, if I can just tell someone about my struggle, then somehow we feel a false repentance of that. Instead of feeling sorrow and repenting of it to, before God, if I can just tell someone, and, and they, this particularly shows up when, when I've got this big massive sin in my life and I share just a tad bit of it with someone, then all of a sudden I kind of feel some relief. But that's not repentance, and you certainly didn't deal with the whole thing. I think we've all done this, if we thought about it, if we look back. We've all told someone a small part of that struggle in our lives, because then that somehow we feel better now. Again, that's just sin delivering, trying to deliver its grand promises, of which it does not, cannot, and will never do. Sin always makes promises and seemingly delivers for a time but will always let us down. And yet we still desire to move 
in that way. Verse 63, let's continue. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is, that, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And Christ does not deny it. One last point, sub-point here. Self-righteousness always leads to the rejection of true righteousness. Like it's not you get both. When we are, they're, they're mutually exclusive, if you will. If we choose self-righteousness, you are rejecting true righteousness. Now, maybe not in an ultimate sense, but at least in a temporal sense, day in and day out, we oftentimes choose self-righteousness, and that is rejecting God's righteousness. Think about this with me. The religious leaders were to guard the temple of God. Right? That was their, they were re, re, guarding the place where God's presence was supposed to be known. He was supposed to meet with His people. The leaders, they were the Pharisees and the scribes, they were supposed to be guarding this. What happens is God sends His own Son, who is ultimately the temple of God, as we will see later in Revelation. And in their self-righteousness, they reject and beat the temple of God. They chose self-righteousness so that when true righteousness was in their very presence, they beat Him and rejected Him. And we do the same thing. Now, this long, terrible evening comes to a conclusion, right? This evening, we're into morning. Yes, we've heard from ourselves. It's done. Let us take care of this blasphemer. But I think if we take a closer look, we will see that it's been God's plan all along. Nothing in this passage happened without a reason. It all was part of God's divine plan. So let's go back, read through, and see God's divine plan. Okay? See the tragedy. All that stuff's still true. Now we're going to see the same story from a different perspective. Or a different vantage point, if you've seen that movie. Seeing God's divine plan. Luke chapter 22, verse 1 through 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the, one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to him in the absence of a crowd. First sub-point, nothing happens apart from God's divine decree. Nothing happens apart from God's divine decree. I mean, think about this. So Satan enters Judas. But what do we know from Job? Satan only does what God permits him to do. Read, uh, when you get a chance, Isaiah 45, 7. It talks about how God, he says, I form light and create darkness. 
I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, we, we want to, and we don't have time to work through this theologically, but we want to think of God as just this God who just rains down little light, white puffy clouds. And, and you know, the, when lightning strikes, oh, that must be like Satan or something like that. Because God would never bring lightning striking someone's house or something to that effect. No, Isaiah would, have, would teach us otherwise. But understand that Judas is, is being led by Satan who is just simply carrying out God's divine decree. Satan will not do anything that God has not allowed or God has not orchestrated to happen. I know there's implications of that, and we can work through that later, but the Bible even talks about how God hardens and softens the hearts of whom He pleases. What's the Bible say about Pharaoh in Egypt? It does say, and Pharaoh grew angry towards God and did not want to let the people go. No, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So this is very much God's design, God's divine plan even though it will result in the murderous death of his son, Jesus. It was his divine plan. Let's read verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Our next thought on our paper there is Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. Ah, so many, such a beautiful picture that we have. Jesus, guys, think about this. Jesus is preparing in this Passover meal for his own sacrifice. I mean, imagine that with me for just a moment. To be preparing this meal that has been practiced for 1,500 years that will see its ultimate reality in my death in two or three days. Or the actual sort of the next day, rather, thinking Christmas two or three days. Guys, the Passover meal was simply a type of its full reality in the sacrifice of Jesus. So at the Passover, right? Passover meal was the celebration of the night when the lamb was sacrificed, put over the door frames, and then the angel of death came to take the firstborn sons but then would pass over those houses where one died as a substitute for that eldest child that and then was then celebrated yearly by the jews for 1500 years and that whole sacrifice the passover the sacrificial system all those practices were god's or was god's tool in teaching his people what would ultimately happen with his son. It was kind of like a visual, if you will. 
You know, if you're a teacher or you're trying to explain something to someone, you want to go draw them a picture or pull out the flannel board, you know, or the, the PowerPoint slides or whatever. It was a visual, it was a picture drawn for them and for us. As how do we interpret the invent of Christ? Like, we don't have all of the clues right here in Luke chapter 23 that help us understand what this was about. No, we look back to the Old Testament and we go, what were the sacrifices about? What was the goal? What was happening? What picture was God drawing? And then that helps us understand what all is going on when Christ dies. It helps us understand what all is going on this very night. Jesus knows he's the fulfillment of this supper. That's why he says it. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus is saying for 1,500 years, what you all have been celebrating has been about me. It was telling you of me coming. When we look at the baby in the manger, do we understand that all of this prior to his birth was about him? And ultimately, he would be the Passover lamb. The one who would be sacrificed in substitute for another. Jesus, Jesus is doing, he's preparing for his own sacrifice. And this too was God's plan. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Sermon for another time right there, verse 17. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body for which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup that they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is, uh, is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this? Next thought, the Lord's Supper was instituted by the one to be sacrificed. The Lord's Supper was instituted by the one to be sacrificed. Jesus shows us that it's clear that he is about to suffer. He says at the very beginning, I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. And that this suffering, he tells us, would be for his people. It would be for us. It would be for them. To show this was God's divine plan, Jesus prophesied even about his own betrayer. That it was coming. That he would be betrayed. And we see the purpose of Jesus' broken body and shed blood would be for our benefit. Those who would follow Jesus. That's the R. Those who would follow Jesus. It's for their benefit. Now, what is the benefit? What is the benefit of the cross, what Jesus would do? The benefit is our redemption. To save us from what we deserve, God's wrath. To give us what we don't deserve, Christ's inheritance. Now, as we're going to celebrate Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to think of this kind of like three aspects here. One is the community aspect when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church, we are publicly re-centering our community squarely on His work, His death, His cross. We are saying that this is the most fundamental way in which we connect to each other. 
that we are centered here. It's not about preferences or, or, or the fact that we all have the same skin color or whatever. We're not centered around those things. We're centered around that and His blood and His death. There's an individual aspect. When we take of this cup and the community lets me or lets us take of this cup, we are recognizing the continual work of Christ in my life. Have you ever thought about the idea that someone should, if they know of sin in your life, tell you, you should not take communion. How many of you growing up in a church, would that not be a very awkward moment for someone to come up to you and say, you should not take communion? Now, I've seen that happen with people because they didn't go to that same church or for other stupid reasons, but... What if someone came to you and said, I know of sin in your life that you should not take communion? On the flip side of that, if, we're prom- if we are trying to carry out that spirit, then when we do take this community and no one stops me, then we are recognizing the continual work of Christ in my life and your life. And there's a future aspect We do this until the kingdom of God comes. Why do we stop doing it when the kingdom of God comes? Because when the kingdom of God comes, we will be eating eating a feast at the table with God. So in a very real sense, we are reenacting a meal from 2,000 years ago. Remembering the death of our Savior. And in a very real sense, we are having a dress rehearsal for a meal that will go on for all of eternity with all the saints of God, with Jesus sitting at the head of the table. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table, or one who serves? It is, not the, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So see God's divine plan for those who follow His Son in servanthood. Those who will be about God magnification will eventually sit at the table of God in His kingdom forever. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you have done, until you have denied me three times that you know me. Notice Jesus' love for Peter, who would deny him. He says, but I, would, I prayed for you. And then when, you're, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew this was coming. Again, Jesus knew P- 
Peter's denial was coming. It was a part of his divine plan. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bags or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's, it's enough. So Jesus here is fulfilling his role as the prophesied suffering servant. Go back and read, when you get a chance, Isaiah 53. That's what Jesus is quoting from right here. It says, I was numbered, he was numbered with the transgressors. God had play, planned long ago. I can see the divine decree of God through this entire night. God had planned long ago that Jesus would be numbered with the sinners. He would not be a sinner, but he would be numbered with the sinners. He would be associated with the sinners. He would be as one with the sinners. And also understand that Christ understood himself to be a substitute sin bearer for us. Jesus understood himself to be this substitute. It was not a surprise to him. Verse 39, And he came out and went, as was custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them and with a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping for sorrow, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This baby that we celebrate, that we celebrate his birth, has understand that that baby will one day bear the wrath of God. He will one day bear the wrath of God, of Almighty God, the one who created this earth, the one who makes the mountains tremble. This cop is symbolic of God's wrath. It's Old Testament symbolism. Jesus will drink it, guys, and He will drink it to its very last drop. Not a drop will be left. And we see that it's His Father's will to do this, right? So Jesus, following God, He says, not my will, but yours be done. So then it's carried out that He sacrifices, so it was God's will. It was His plan. He purposed it. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. The man called Judas, one of the twelve was leading him. He drew near to Jesus, kissing him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you portray the son of a man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that, saw that would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against, as, as, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Just notice the betrayal and suffering continues. Verse 55, and when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, 
this man also was with him. But Peter denied it. And he continues on, guys. We see this three denials of Christ, verse 62. And we went out, he wept bitterly. So we see Jesus' prediction coming through, God's divine decree coming through. Peter realizes this. His strength had failed. But then he sees the gaze of the one who knows him better than he knows himself. He sees Christ. Jesus' suffering continues, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Guys, again, part of God's divine design and decree, those guarding the temple of the Lord beat the Lord of the temple. Those guarding the temple of the Lord beat the Lord of the temple. The irony. Right? Those, the guards mock and beat Jesus. What should the guards have been doing? They should have cared for Jesus more than anything else in the world at that time. My question is, how many of us, by our rejection of self-righteousness, our rejection of His Lordship, essentially beat the Lord of the temple when we should be loving, caring for, and building the kingdom for the Lord of the temple. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What is he saying? Right, That's a very bold statement. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Last point there. The guardians of the truth condemned Jesus for the very truth that came from his mouth. So the priests, the elders, the scribes were supposed to be the guardians of the truth, right? Because the truth is God. Any truth comes from God. And so as they guard truth, they're representing God. And so as the very essence of truth, the Word of God stands before them, they reject Him and condemn Him. My question is, how many of us condemn truth in order to justify what we want? We justify what we want by saying, or forgetting, or condemning, saying, well, that truth doesn't apply to me, or I don't want to listen to that right now, or that doesn't fit my agenda. And so we condemn truth in order to justify our agenda. That's what happens. The guardians of the temple want their kingdom. And they say, let's condemn him who is truth. The very truth that we should be guarding with our lives. So as we think about this passage this morning, we've seen it from two different views. 
The same event, two different views. One, the tragedy. The second, the divine decree. And guys, I just want us to think about this. This event means so much good for us. As you look at Christ, and you think He was born for this night, that means so much good for us. A good of eternal value and infinite weight. It was why this baby was born. And if you're not a follower of Christ, or if you know, know, know those who do not follow Christ this Christmas, and you might ask them, do you believe this divine plan as we see here, that God would send His Son to bear your sins so that you could place your trust in Him for salvation from those sins? Sometimes it is beneficial for us to not see the truth, right? The truth's there, but I don't want to see it. And those who are not walking and following Christ oftentimes know the truth, but don't want to see it. It's convenient for us to not see the truth sometimes because it enables us to continue building our own kingdom that the Bible tells us will eventually crumble and fall. Now, Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, will you forsake your self-righteousness and hear the truth that Jesus died for me and you? Will you look at that baby and go, He died for me. He will one day bear my sins. When we give gifts, let it consume our hearts and mind that I give this gift to my child just as my Father in Heaven gave His gift of His Son to me. Why do I give this gift to you, my son, Chapman, Hayden, Silas? It's because God has given me a gift that I never deserved, I could not repay, and as a gift like, I could never give you, my son, my daughter. I give you this gift because it resembles the gift or the action of the gift that God has given to me. So, and particularly, when, when we get down to, like, and I think of Chapman and, and my boys and their ages, there's nothing they can give to me, right? They can give nothing to me. They're not going to go out and buy me a car or, or buy me a new computer. Like, they, they're not going to do that. If they did it, they did it with my wife's money. You know what I'm saying? Now, as they get older, they can then ascribe value to me. But ultimately, God... We can add nothing to Him. He is the one who gives a gift for which nothing can be given in return. Even the very act of the life of sacrifice that we give is the gift that He gave to us so that we could do that. So Christians, let's think through this as we live out Christmas this year. As that He loved us so much, even knowing the truth of our depravity, He still gave us Life through His Son. This Christmas, will you believe that Jesus left the eternal splendor and greatness of heaven to take on the form of a dreadful man so that He might earn our righteousness and bear our cross? See, the baby coming is not just this little cool thing. He gave up the splendor and majesty of heaven to live with us. You see, the fact is, God's divine plan was that the tragedy of that night was meant to be ours, but instead was Christ's.
when you see the baby in the manger later this week, remember, he bore the tragedy that was ours to bear. So I want to pray for us. We're going to do the Lord's Supper here, sing one song, and then we'll be dismissed. But uh, some instructions for as we do Lord's Supper. If you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to enjoy the wonderful opportunity this morning to watch a body rally around and commemorate the work of our Savior. I want to encourage you guys as we think through Christmas this year that, uh, that you do it remembering the body and the blood that will one day be shed from that infant. Uh, and if you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to know that you too can experience life with Christ. You too can. I would encourage you to talk to me or Rusty or someone else here after service. And uh, if you are a follower of Christ, I want you to encourage you to do this. Ask God if there is any unrepentance in your life. Is there any unrepentance in your life? Let's celebrate together the purpose for which this baby came, right? To die. Uh, and I want us to remember that and let it be forever ingrained in our minds. So, as we begin the song, uh, here's what we want to do. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come forward. And just as you are ready, you can stay in your seat, spend some time in prayer. After you're done, come up, break a piece off, uh, put it in the, the blood and go back. Spend some more time in prayer and take when you guys are ready. And um, We're going to remain standing the whole time uh, during the song. Uh, it's a newer song, so if you don't know it, reflect on the words. If you know it, sing along, okay? I want to pray for us as we get ready for this. Father, thank you for um, this opportunity to uh, celebrate the body and the blood. Thank you for uh, your text today that we can be reminded of the goodness uh, that is ours in Christ. Um, if we would just believe, if we just surrender to your work in our life. Father, I just, as we think about Christmas coming up this year, um, Father, I just, I, I pray that we would not be so consumed with the things that matter so very little in our lives, like all of the materialism that surrounds us. Father, all of the, all of the, uh, uh, just the hoopla that we've created, and Father, we end up missing out on the gospel in the meantime. And, and Father, there's so many implications to what we've talked about today. Um, Father, I just pray that we would think um, upon those this week. And Father, I pray that this Christmas would be a Christmas unlike any Christmas before. That we would see the baby in the manger as one who came to die. One who came to give his life for us. And Father, let us commemorate that and be therefore recentered on the work of your son Jesus Christ as we partake together of your meal. Father, I pray again that this Christmas would be unlike any Christmas we've had so far. Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.